Welcome to the Most Accurate Podcast presented by 444.com. My name is Greg Smith. I am your host. Chris Allen is back on the show today to help me recap Week 11, work the Week 12 waiver wire, then look ahead a little bit more generally to the fantasy football playoffs. The music on today's show is New Cannonball Run by TV on the radio. It's from their 2011 album called Nine Types of Light. To hear the full song and all the other songs I use on my episodes, click the link in the show notes to the TMAP B-Sides playlist on Spotify. Today's show is sponsored by FantasyDraft.com, the one and only rake-free DFS site in the business. What does rake-free mean? It means that 100% of entry fees at Fantasy Draft are paid out to contest winners. If you want to try them out on a free 7-day trial, go to FantasyDraft.com, sign up with the promo code 444, that's 4-F-O-R-4, and say goodbye to the rake. Now let's say hello once again to Chris Allen. You can find his work at 444, Number Fire, and Dynasty League Football. Be sure to follow him on Twitter at ChrisAllenFFWX. And if you're not in the know, the WX stands for Weather Expert. So if you missed it, Chris made an appearance on AccuWeather's Field Conditions podcast last week. Check the link in the show notes if you want to go back and listen to that. But Chris, welcome to the show. Let's talk about weather going forward. Uh, how well did your weather prognostications do in week 11? And what are you thinking about in terms of weather uh, as we move towards the fantasy playoffs? Well, Greg, first and foremost, I mean, thanks for having me back on. I mean, it's been, I think we got together back in week four, and I will get into it uh, certainly throughout the, uh, this today's show, but so much has changed, I mean, over the last couple of months that I think a lot of our priors that we had, like, towards the beginning of the season, we just, we can't really hold on to those as much, but we'll get into that conversation here in a little bit. But I'm doing well, and as for weather, I mean, it's been kind of quiet. Uh, when I was talking yeah. to the guys from AccuWeather uh, last week, like, while from a from a weather perspective, I mean, there's, there's always, you want to have something to talk about, right? You know, that, oh, there's going to be some snow or some rain or or something like that. But luckily enough, we haven't had like too many games where the weather has played, I guess, a significant factor in terms of trying to evaluate these matchups. I know we did have uh, the one game, I think it was uh, Philadelphia versus Buffalo. I want to say that was about a month ago where the wind and rain was kind of whipping around the stadium. I know that uh, New England has had a couple of uh, high wind speed games, but I mean, throughout throughout most of it, we've had, and then of course the mud bowl uh, between Washington and the Jets, I believe it was, or that might have been the Niners. Different. Yeah, the Niners. Thank you. Uh, but I mean, overall, we haven't had just a ton of those games where. Coming into lineup lock Sunday morning, we've really had to make those really tough decisions and thinking about whether or not the weather kind of plays an impact. So luckily, I think that we've we've been able to avoid most of that. But at the same time, uh, it is something that interests me. And of course, if people have been following my writing for a while, it's something that I've written on for quite some time. So uh, it's. Just as we get into the winter months, there is always the conversation about, well, is snow going to change things? I know we think about the – was it the Seahawks in Minnesota game from I think it was like 2016 when it was negative 20? The snow game when Frank Gore and LaShawn McCoy combined for something like 50 rushes in a game. We remember those games, and I don't think – I haven't seen anything in the forecast to indicate that's coming. But as we're getting into mid-November and December's right around the corner, it's just something that's on folks' minds. But unless it really gets into those extreme conditions i don't really see much of an issue so i think we can kind of plan for the games as we normally would well right but at the same time because we've been dealing with this lull in weather effects we haven't seen weather be a huge impact on many games if any in the recent weeks i think that does make it a bit of an edge to 
keep an eye on this stuff and wait for it to matter, right? If it turns out that a certain game is going to have a win speed that's going to be so egregious that we need to get off of kickers and receivers in that game, like that makes a difference. But if people have become accustomed to not worrying about the weather over the past few weeks, I I think you can gain an advantage by still staying on top of it. And I I say this like it's easy just to keep track of everything that we have to keep track of in fantasy because there's always some other stat you can be looking at or some other angle you can be shooting from. But I do think that there's still an advantage to be had here in terms of the weather, don't you? Oh, absolutely. And I think a, a lot of folks, like when they, when a lot of folks discount the weather impacts, and I've seen that like throughout Twitter and whatnot, I think that's where we can really gain our edge. And while, uh, unless it's again in those extreme conditions, but at the same time, we kind of need some of those, those boom weeks out of those players that we would kind of hold near and dear. Uh, I think it was actually the Buffalo game that I was uh, referencing was one where everybody was expecting, it was like Buffalo versus the Eagles. The Eagles have a weak secondary. So So the expectation was that it was going to be Josh Allen to John Brown. And while my expectation, I was hoping for similar results, again, with with the way that the weather was kind of working out, it just seemed to me that Josh Allen could still meet value. John Brown could at least have a floor to median projection type of day, but I just didn't see the same type of boom week that we saw just this past week and then we're playing against Miami. Now, again, that's the way it kind of worked out, but again, do you want to say that it was because of the weather? No, but at least that was just another piece of the puzzle that you could use in order to make that defensible decision in order to maybe look elsewhere. I mean, of course, he still uh, turned out to be a fine play in PPR leagues, but it's just adjusting those expectations. And that's where you can make separate roster decisions that w- might wind up at least complementing your roster when you're not going to have those hammer weeks that you would expect. Well, and it's about knowing how to adjust your roster, right? Like, you're not going to necessarily fade Josh Allen if the weather is bad because he does so much on the ground on his Mm -hmm. own. Like, that rushing production is a big part of his game. It's why we start him in the first place. And if the weather is bad, you can actually project maybe more of those rushing attempts for him. And And that's exactly what happened. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's interesting. You, you got to kind of wrap your brain around what the weather does to a game plan. Like, it's generally going to lead to more running. And it's not going to completely eliminate the pass. Like, on a third and seven, chances are someone's still going to pass the ball. You just have to know where those targets are going to go. And when the weather conditions are horrendous, that usually means more attempts to the running backs, to the tight ends, to the short yardage areas of the field. And maybe they'll manufacture touches like that for a player like John Brown or what have you. But it's nuanced. It's not just, uh, oh, the weather's bad, fade everybody in the matchup, right? 100%. And uh, John Paulson and I, in a couple of those uh, poor weather games in like some of those extreme conditions, we've had some of those back and forth conversations and even dug into the the air yards, uh, target shares, and things of that nature to find out, okay, well, how are teams responding in those situations? And we both agreed that, especially in that particular situation, we had agreed beforehand that, yes, uh, Josh Allen, he should be able to make value based off of his legs. John Brown, sure, given his current target share within that offense, he should be able to at least make value, but like his ceiling was probably going to be capped, and that's kind of exactly how things kind of worked out. But it's just, again, adjusting those expectations. And then, of course, if things don't work out that way, kind of working back through the data and through how the game actually played out to see how we can adjust our priors moving forward. And if there is an edge to be gained, I think that's where reevaluating your position can really help you out as a fantasy football player. So what else stood out to you in week 11? 
Uh, so far, I mean, the biggest thing that stood out to me in week 11 uh, was just like some of those uh, those injury situations that a lot of folks going into week 11 just really couldn't get their handle on. Because like one of the big plays that I was trying to look forward to playing this week was Debo Samuel. And I think if we had gotten word that Emmanuel Sanders was going to be out, Debo, Samuels, uh, Debo Samuel would have been in my lineup, I mean, in any lineup that I could have possibly gotten him on. Because I think I either had him on the bench or I saw him on the waiver wire. But I just needed that confirmation with uh, with Sanders being out. When he was in and they said he was going to try and gut it out, well, I saw that you know Tevin Coleman was there, Jeff Wilson, and they're, you know, they've been using the running backs quite a bit. Uh, Dwelly, or I believe that's how you pronounce his last name. I mean, he was going to step in for Kittle, so it seemed like his target projection would have been pretty decent. So it just I didn't have enough uh, conviction in order to play Debo Samuel, and there he went for, I think it was like 10, 10 receptions over 100 yards. So it was just, I mean, good to see that that's, what the, that's the type of ceiling game that's in his range of outcomes, but I just couldn't, I guess, fit the puzzle or you know connect the dots enough in order to start him. So you see that as a ceiling game for Debo going forward. You, you don't expect this sort of thing to continue because he's had a lot of targets in each of the past two weeks. And yes, that does coincide with the Emmanuel Sanders injury, but it certainly seems like he's completely pushed aside Dante Pettis. Marquise Goodwin is also an afterthought. Kendrick Bourne is starting to come into more targets here week to week. I think he's probably the biggest riser uh, with the Sanders injury. I think those targets for Debo are probably going to be sustainable. I, I'm surprised that, that you called it a ceiling game. And from from an output standpoint, in terms of yardage, yes, that might be the most yardage he gains all in a game all year. But I, I see this as being something that could keep up for Debo. I'm really excited about seeing what he can do down the stretch. And I think that's a that's a fair assessment. I think more of from a fantasy production, like his total, I mean, 10, 10 targets or 10 uh, receptions over 100 yards touch and all that. That's where I'm thinking more of a ceiling game. But from a target perspective, yes. I mean, from between Sanders, assuming he's healthy, I would assume he would uh, still take on that number one. George Kittle, if he's healthy, might be number two. But even still, I mean, with the way that Debo was used this past week, I can see that role being consistent. Uh, Kendrick Bourne. I'm I'm wondering about Kendrick Bourne's I guess usage going forward because he's was uh, mostly used I guess his fantasy production came in the came in the red zone two red zone targets and they wound up like converting into touchdowns so while he's popped I guess in in that sense I still think the core would wind up being Sanders Kittle and then Samuel moving forward and then whatever I guess target share you can project for for the running back so yes I do agree with you in that respect yeah and I think you're right to point out. Bourne's production in the red zone is a bit of a red flag here, but he has had eight targets and six targets over the past two weeks. It just so happens that he caught a touchdown in both of those games. I think we can tie that production a little bit to the loss of Kittle more than the loss of Sanders, right? Because if you lose Kittle, you lose that big bodied red zone threat and Garoppolo is going to have to look down other avenues. And if Kittle's out, that means the defense is going to be focusing more on Sanders, more on Debo Samuel, more on the running game, probably more than anything else. And at that point, Kendrick Bourne is going to be able to find that soft spot in a zone or the weakest link in man coverage and exploit that around the the goal line with Samuel 10 targets this week 11 targets a week before seven targets a week before that so I think that he's pretty locked in there as the number two receiver behind or the number two wide receiver I should say behind Emmanuel Sanders the question Mm -hmm. is is what's this offense going to look like when both Sanders and Kittle are back on the field and we we just don't know it we're gonna have to wait and find out 
Exactly. I think this uh, this upcoming week will be a pretty decent test. Uh, Green Bay coming off of a coming off of their buy. I mean, their secondary hasn't been what they started off with within the first four weeks. I think their secondary was actually pretty decent. Uh, but we'll we'll see how how things turn out uh, in the, in week twelve. The thing that stood out to me the most was this continued turnaround for Atlanta and specifically how it's been on the back of their defense and on the road. The Falcons held the Saints to nine points last week, and they just now held the Panthers to three points this week. In those games, Drew Brees had a 6.4 yards per attempt, no touchdowns. Kyle Allen had a 6.5 yards per attempt, no touchdowns, four interceptions. And another thing that stood out to me about these matchups were the big gaps in penalty yards for both teams. So in Week 10, the Saints had 12 penalties for 90 yards. The Falcons only had seven for 48. In Week 11, the Panthers had eight penalties for 68 yards, while the Falcons only had three for 20 it seems like the Falcons defense is really stepping up. And yes, they're getting some help from the Zebras in these games, but they're stopping teams when it matters. New Orleans and Carolina were a combined 0 for 5 in the red zone, 5 for 26 on third down against Atlanta. So this has been really impressive to me and very surprising. Like I was ready to bury the Falcons. I picked against them a couple times. I uh, was using the Carolina defense everywhere this week, thinking that you know last week's Atlanta performance was just a blip and the Panthers have a good defense, so they'll be fine. I was way off base there, and I've, I've just been really impressed by the Falcons. I agree, and this was one of those, I guess, concepts that I was talking about before and we opened the show in that things or trends that we had were holding kind of near and dear to our hearts like throughout most of the season. I think that's fair in most cases, but when you look at some of these shorter trends and you really dig into the nuance about uh, how teams are operating, you can start to see like where these shifts start to take place. So I guess it was noted that uh, Dan Quinn, he turned over play calling duties uh, to the uh, to the defensive coordinator. And since then, uh, Lord Reeves, uh, Rich Rebar on, uh, on Twitter, he had mentioned that they were 32nd in scoring rate per drive, the Atlanta defense, over through the first eight weeks. So, I mean, a decent, I mean, a sizable sample. But over the last couple of games, they've dropped, they've dropped down to, uh, they've dropped down to fifth. I mean, they're first in the third down conversion rate, so they've been stopping like uh, offensive offensive teams in the way that they've been able to convert on third down. And now they're fifth in scoring drive, uh, scoring rate per drive. So it's like. This team has actually turned it around in a way that like we didn't really expect, but at least last week showed that when they got the six sacks on Drew Brees, and I believe it was five sacks this past week, if I'm not mistaken. So it's just we kind of saw that, but I think a lot of folks looked at the larger sample, thought it was just a blip because of the divisional rivalry between the Falcons and the Saints, and there was just no way that they could sustain like a two-week sample after seeing so much from the you know first part of the season. In the larger run, I think that kind of makes sense. I fell into it, too, because I guess that since I write the quarterback streaming article for 4 for 4, I was all about Kyle Allen this week. For me, with Kyle Allen playing at least functionally throughout most of his starts, with Cam Newton now being on IR, having DJ Moore, Curtis Samuel, Greg Olson, and Kristen McCaffrey, of course, there was just it was hard for me looking at that matchup and saying that there's no way that he can at least return like QB2, possibly QB1 numbers. And lo and behold, I mean, with that change, this Atlanta defense has really stepped it up. So it, it, it it's forced me to reevaluate my process and really start digging into these shorter term windows to see if there's actually any teeth to what we're seeing. Yeah, it's interesting, too, because we were wrong about the Falcons at the beginning of the year. Then we were we kind of figured out, OK, this team has gotten bad, too many injuries, all this other nonsense going on with them. They're not going to be very reliable going forward. 
And then they have this two-game stretch where they look great again. And I know I know that Sigmund Bloom talks about this a lot on his show, uh, On the Couch, another great podcast. Uh, you're, you're right, then you're wrong, then you're right again. Mm-hmm. Throughout the course of the season, we have these little pockets of information, these little windows into a team's play. And I don't know, because things change so fast and because they change so often and so much, I really have to fall back on that idea of, chasing volume more than anything else so we, we really shouldn't care about the Panthers facing Atlanta's defense necessarily even though in this case it turned out that Kyle Allen didn't perform well the, the volume was there he had plenty of attempts like that, that's what we want to see uh, it just so happens that the results were bad I feel like he was still a good process play and that we we can't worry too much about these small like microcosms of information because things could be totally different in two weeks you know what I mean Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's that's where I think we can kind of fall prey to, I guess, uh, what is it, the uh, paralysis by analysis where we just we're taking in too much information can kind of, you know, freeze or I guess like guess completely change like our normal way of going about making these roster adjustments. So in some cases it works, but over the larger run, I think, again, from a process play, I get it. I mean, I did it. I mean, of course, that was my, you know, my top streamer for the week. So, Me too. Yeah, guilty. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I think, you know, moving forward, I think I would still probably make that recommendation 10 times out of 10. But in these, in some cases, again, you just have to, again, going back and reevaluating, I don't think from a process standpoint it was wrong. But moving forward, we now know that this is now a defensive I guess a, a, def- a defense that we don't want to target, which makes things kind of interesting now with them playing Tampa Bay this upcoming week. So who else surprised you? Let's talk booms of the week. Which fantasy starters for your teams made the biggest or most unexpected positive impact? Oh, easily, easily John Brown. I mean, you know, he was steady Eddie the last uh, three weeks. I mean, five for 54, four for 76, uh, five for 77. But we saw at least from an air yards perspective, I mean, he had over 40% of the team's air yards, 30% of the team's target share. So we could kind of see the boom week coming. It was just when, when all of those air yards and all of that usage was going to cash in. And while Miami showed a little bit of teeth last week when they played against the, when they played against the Colts, but Again, this week it finally uh, finally wound up hitting. I mean, that was one that I had hoped was going to was going to hit. Um, I played uh, John Brown and Josh Allen DFS stack this past week in, in GPP, so that kind of worked out for me uh, on both redraft and DFS. But yeah, that that one was a, a definite boom for me. You know, John Brown was the wide receiver one for me. It was the wide receiver two on the week so far. DJ Chark, fifteen targets, eight catches, one hundred two yards, two touchdowns. That's twenty six and a half points, give or take in half-point PPR scoring, and I tweeted about this Sunday morning before the game started. I was curious to see how that receiving core was going to shake out with Nick Foles back under center because we didn't really have a great idea of how he was going to be distributing targets because we had such a small sample size of Foles in the beginning of the year. We know that Chark popped with Gardner Minshew. Was Chark going to pop with Nick Foles? It turns out, yes, absolutely, and that was good to see. I started Chark in Scott Fishbowl, and if I am able to pull out a win there. It'll be largely on the back of that chart performance. I saw a really good tweet from Jared Smola at Smola DS on Twitter. He said that DJ Chark has been targeted on 17 of 55 Nick Foles pass attempts this season. That's a 31% target share. So all of those fears I had about DJ Chark as the number one wide receiver in Jacksonville, those have been assuaged. I am fully on board with him kind of as a locked in wide receiver one for the rest of the year, especially given their upcoming schedule. 
he's definitely separated himself as the number one. I, I do wonder, though, if uh, part of Westbrook's, I guess, uh, position in that offense is due to the injury. I don't I didn't get a chance to check his practice reports leading up to week 11. But I know that with both of his shoulder and neck injury that he had sustained, I believe it was the week before their bye. Uh, I'm wondering if that's there's maybe some residuals from there and he can kind of like move back into that offense because it even looked like Chris Conley had uh, taken over some of that target share in week 11. Yeah, Conley's looking good, and we know that Full. I talked about this on the show last week, but we know that Foles essentially recruited Conley to come be there, and mm-hmm. I think he had eight targets, not no touchdowns, but a handful of catches and 60, 70 yards or so. It seems like he's viable as maybe a, a flex play going forward, especially in PPR formats, uh, but we'll see. Uh, a couple other players that jumped out to me and I was impressed by were Mark Ingram and Joe Mixon. Not, not that you know Mark Ingram had a great game. He was mostly buoyed by touchdowns, and that's kind of been his M.O., but uh, these two guys succeeded in the face of seemingly tough matchups. Um, do you like either of them going forward? Mark Ingram, uh, I'm still somewhat concerned because they seem to be, I wouldn't say they're frivolous with how they distribute the backfield touches but I mean Gus Edwards didn't wind up with uh, with a touchdown uh, yesterday and we've seen a lot of work uh, like sharing of the snaps between him Edwards and just a little bit of sprinkle of Justice Hill and I wish I could see this is from like my my dynasty mindset I wish I could see more Justice Hill but either way uh, it does look like even still like Mark Ingram he is like he is the lead back uh, but with Lamar running so much and seeing the the usage of the other two backs, it's just uh, the week to week proposition seems kind of tough for me. But still, I mean, if you have him this, you've been holding on to him for this long. I think he's one that you're you're still going to be starting each week. Yeah, I think both of them are just so dialed in as the lead backs in their offenses that I can't move off of them. Like I'm not going to look yeah. to trade Mark Ingram necessarily. I think I had this argument with Jim Saunas a few weeks ago uh, about you know how reliant he is on touchdowns and how that can be a problem. But at the same time, that's also a benefit at times, right? Because touchdowns can give you those spike weeks, uh, mm-hmm. especially when the matchup is right. But yeah, I'll be curious to see how they both finish the season because they've both been a little sketchy to this point. Uh, which week 11 benching or DFS fade do you regret the most, Chris? And what do you think you missed with that player? Uh, I think it goes back to that Debo Samuel play. I mean, again, without, uh, I think, looking too much at or at least believing too much that his week 10 work was just more of a, well, Sanders wasn't in, so then Debo Samuel, that was really the primary driver for him getting seeing so many targets. And with Sanders being back in the lineup, I didn't see that target share maintaining itself. That was really hard for me to try and fit in. And I think this past week, from a DFS perspective, it was for me it was more of, well, am I, what, am I going to try and fit in Christian McCaffrey or am I going to try and fit in Michael Thomas? Because those two sat up as you know the most expensive plays like on the week. And even though like finding value at either i mean either the running back or wide receiver, wide receiver position is a weekly prospect again without understanding at least without having enough conviction about that uh about making that play i think he was only like 4k or something like that on draftkings it, it still i didn't have enough of a sense to try and make that play like in that week so that was probably the the hardest one that i'll i'll probably regret for the rest of the season to be quite honest with you I actually backed into him on a couple lineups in DFS just because I was paying up egregiously for all the the top running backs. I just needed those cheap wide receivers to round out my lineup, and it just so happens that Debo was one of those guys. Yeah, I was looking at like Westbrook. I, I like I played DD in a, in a couple of uh, in a couple of uh, lineups, and uh, yeah, that didn't work out. Yeah, I mean, what can you do? It, it happens. Um, for me, it was Dallas Goddard. 
I had Gerald Everett going over Goddard in hopes of, you know, more big target volume with Brandon Cook sidelined. And I, I have to admit, I was still a little worried about that matchup for Goddard against the New England defense. I'm starting to wonder, like, is me caring about matchups or defenses still correct? Like we mentioned this earlier with Kyle Allen and the Falcons, and, and that looked like a good matchup and it didn't play out that way. Uh, maybe I should have been more concerned about the player, right? And in this case, we know the player Dallas Goddard is very good. He has trouble, you know, kind of standing out because he's on the same team as Zach Ertz, but that doesn't mean that he is not a viable player in fantasy. He continues to score touchdowns, and with all the other injuries they have at wide receiver in Philadelphia, Goddard is pretty locked into a handful of targets every week. I'm curious where you land on this spectrum of whether defenses matter or not for the opposing fantasy players, Chris. What do you think? Um, I mean, at the extremes, and I think so. I mean, we just saw that with uh, Baltimore and Houston this past week. And uh, with the way that Baltimore's defense has really been playing, like since the Marcus Peters trade, uh, we're starting to see some of those extreme situations kind of bear out and how they limited Houston's offense. Uh, but overall, no, not too much. And again, I think New England kind of sits at that in one of those like extreme situations where they can uh, limit uh, opposing passers from both a uh, like how they target their wide receivers and then like where the distribution of targets wind up going. And so this past week, uh, with how New England has kind of played against uh, how, how they played Philadelphia in the past, it did seem like Dallas Goddard was going to be, I guess, the quote unquote beneficiary for how they were going to distribute their targets. And with his rising market share within that offense, and then you also had Alshon Jeffrey going to be out uh, in week 11, it made sense, I guess, from a from a process standpoint to wind up on Dallas Goddard. But fading him because of the New England defense, it made sense uh, from a targets perspective because if you didn't think that uh, that Philadelphia was going to be able to move the ball all that well against New England, then there wouldn't be a large target share for anybody in that offense. But I did think that if anybody was going to benefit from the, I guess, the condensed target tree, it would have been Dallas Goddard because I don't have much faith in Nelson Aguilar, I mean, at all anymore. Uh, I mean, Mac Hollins, I don't even think that's a thing. So and Miles Sanders, like while he was going to wind up getting the most work out of the backfield, we've seen him kind of come and like produce in spurts and stutters throughout the season as he starts to figure out really reading key blocks and all that. So it, to me, it just seemed like if I was going to play any Eagle this week, it would have been Dallas Goddard and that I mean, in Zach Ertz, I mean, you're probably forced into starting him, but that would have been the only one I would have felt comfortable with. And to be fair, I used Goddard in a couple places, but in that one spot where I had him up against Everett, I just, I couldn't get off of Everett. And I do think Goddard is the better talent there. I think that he's actually set up for a little bit more success. But again, I was kind of chasing what I thought was going to be a lot of volume in the passing game for Everett. What's your take on that Rams offense going forward? Because Robert Woods was a surprising inactive yesterday. If he continues to miss time, if Brandon Cook continues to miss time, and their running game continues to be a little hit or miss week to week. Uh, what are your expectations for them? It's weird to me to see an offense that we had hailed as going to be one of these just offensive juggernauts, like no more than maybe two seasons ago. And to see them just completely come out this season and they're just, it's almost boring to watch. It's almost kind of sad to be quite honest with you. I mean, because we, we had these, Assets that, I mean, Robert Woods, Brandon Cooks, and Cooper Cup were all going in what, maybe the third round or something like that in best balls during the offseason. And Jared Goff was maybe going in the, I mean, he was going the the middle tier of, of quarterbacks. And it's just, it's hard for me to see how any of them wind up 
needing value at this point. And I think most of it is has come down to like where the offensive line play because I think a lot of yeah. Jared Goff's uh, his ability to function as a passer has been directly correlated to that offensive line play. And with the fact that he hasn't been given enough time to really set up and read his routes correctly or read the coverage correctly and also be able to see the routes as they develop, you've kind of seen how Brandon Cooks has kind of gone by the wayside. I mean, they're not really attempting as many downfield attempts as we've seen them over the past couple of seasons. And that's, I mean, completely tied into how Brandon Cooks, I think, only has maybe 600 yards or total receiving yards on the season. I mean, that's where guys like Josh Reynolds, while I know they're going to be one of the, I mean, hot waiver wire pickups if they haven't been picked up already. I mean, with his pretty high ADOT, it's hard for me to, I guess, really, I guess, have a sense of confidence starting them because it seems like, you know, Cooper Cup has been the guy or like the target, but now teams have just figured out that, okay, well, we'll just take him away. And then what have you got left after that? I guess a lot of Todd Gurley runs for the most part. Right. And if... Josh Reynolds is going deep down the field, but the offensive line is a problem. Those targets might not always have enough time to get there, and that's mm-hmm. going to make him into a boomer bust play every week. Uh, now we've talked about booms. Let's get to the bus. Which player made the biggest or most unexpected negative impact on your fantasy rosters this week? Oh, easily. I mean, Kyle Allen. I mean, I, I've had him. <laughs> I had him. I had him everywhere. And uh, I know I, I didn't buy into the you know, Kyle Allen should replace Cam Newton conversation that the Twitterverse was having after Cam Newton went on IR uh, shortly after week nine. But at least for I mean, in Kyle Allen's defense, he at least appeared functional. He had, I think, at that point, I mean, four or five wins under his belt. I mean, he looked decent in most of his games. I know that the fumbling was something of a concern, but at the same time, uh, the Panthers' offensive line, I think, was either 25th or 26th in uh, in a past uh, yeah, past defensive DVOA. So I can I can give I can make some excuses for him. But after this past week, and I know that we said that you know Atlanta's defense has definitely improved, but it just seemed like he was trying to do way too much. He wasn't settling down in the pocket. He wasn't actually reading coverages in a couple, like in a, at least two of his uh, interceptions. So it's hard for me to get behind, uh, I guess, looking at him even as a matchup-based starter, like moving forward. I'm, I haven't looked at Carolina's schedule over the next few weeks and into the playoffs, but now, I mean, unless you have, I mean, you have DJ Moore, sure. I mean, he's seeing the lion's share of the touches, like, uh, in Carolina's offense. Greg Olson, maybe. Curtis Samuel, I mean, he has so many unrealized air yards. I don't know what to do with him at this point. Christian McCaffrey is the only person that you're starting week in, week in and week out. So other than that, it's just, I mean, that was the one that hurt the most. Like after looking at that matchup and then seeing how at least, yes, he was playing decently over the past few weeks, it was hard to see those results. Yeah, I started him in one of my leagues. I used him in one of my DFS cash game lineups. And yeah, pretty big disappointment there. But looking at his schedule coming up, it's not the worst. He's got some reasonable matchups coming up. He's at New Orleans next week, which is a little bit scary. Uh, But then he has Washington, then they're at Atlanta, and despite the fact that they just got annihilated by the Falcons, I would probably still use him again in that Week 14 game on the road, just because, like we talked about before, I feel like the process to start Kyle Allen in that sort of scenario was correct, and we get to retest that again in Week 14. Uh, After that, it's Seattle Week 15 at Indianapolis Week 16. Those are both 
a little shakier, but if you're going to beat the Seahawks, it's usually by passing. So I think that Kyle Allen is a reasonable player to keep on your roster if you're in a two-quarterback league, and you can start him, I think, with reasonable confidence. But I hate to say it, that's kind of every starting quarterback these days. Like There are some that are clearly much worse than others, but... Mm -hmm. In terms of that weekly floor, every quarterback has it. It's just a matter of whether or not they realize a ceiling in a given game with either spiking their touchdowns or getting into a shootout so that the yardage goes crazy. Hopefully, they won't destroy themselves with turnovers like Kyle Allen happened to do in Week 11. But there is something to be said about that just kind of safety in any quarterback. And I think Kyle Allen is still there for me despite uh, this one bad matchup. For my bust of the week, I could go a lot of different directions, uh, including many prominent, you know, number one wide receivers for their team, Samari Cooper, Zach Pascal, uh, Kenny Galladay. But I want to hone in on Juju Smith-Schuster because oh, man, yeah. this was a rough one. And admittedly, yeah. it was all Mason Rudolph's fault. I think that the, the way that game ended is going to kind of overshadow how poorly Mason Rudolph played, how bad that Steelers offense generally looked. Uh, but unfortunately, Rudolph probably isn't going away. He didn't even get suspended for his, uh, you know, interaction at the end of the game. So what are fantasy owners supposed to do with Juju going forward? Because this is a guy we were drafting in the first or second round, and it's just not there with Mason Rudolph, and that's not going to change. I'm worried. Oh, I'm worried too. I mean, uh, I mean, really the only beneficiaries so far have been uh, Jalen Samuels because he's been receiving just a ton of dump-offs whenever James Conner has been out of the lineup, and it looks like that will be the case for Week 12. Uh, and James Washington and maybe Deontay Johnson because surprisingly enough, like Mason Rudolph has been taking, uh, I think he's first in the league over the past few weeks in terms of uh, 15 plus air yard shots like downfield. Now they hasn't, he's only connected on like a handful of them, but at least from a volume perspective, if you want to try and swing for, you know, try and swing for those home runs or try and make, take those home run shots, then I guess Mason Rudolph has been trying to do that. And since they play the Bengals this upcoming week, Okay, uh, maybe yeah. you might feel you know a little bit comfortable like trying to start Juju this uh, this coming week, assuming he is going to play. Is he going to play this week? But I guess well, since it was a Thursday night game, I guess they should have uh, he should have time to recover by then. But either way, Mason Rudolph, I'm surprised that I guess they don't have too much else behind him in order to start. But I guess if the Steelers really wanted to take a look in the mirror and find out like what their franchise is going to look like in 2020. Uh, assuming if Ben isn't going to come back, then I'm not sure Mason Rudolph is really going to be the answer. So I'm wondering if they should make a quarterback change at this point. I don't think that that's likely. But either way, for for Juju, this is what you've got. I mean, you know, kind of a dink and dunk type of offense without too much of a ceiling. And unless the matchup is right, which it appears to be this upcoming weekend, I mean, really can't look for those boom weeks that we'd expect from a guy that we were drafting in the first round. One quarterback who definitely isn't going to be replaced, but did have some of his own issues with dinking and dunking in Week 11 was Tom Brady. And I'm curious what you think it means that the Patriots couldn't really make easy work of the Eagles secondary in that game. Is the Philly defense finally figuring things out, coming after their bye? Or should we be worried about the Patriots offense without Josh Gordon, without Philip Dorsett, and dare I say Antonio Brown? Like, there's been a lot of turnover there. They, they brought in Mohamed Sanu. Is this an Eagles defense getting better issue or a Patriots offense getting worse issue? What's your take? Uh, it does sound like it is a Patriots offense getting worse take. I mean, if you look at their uh, yards per drive, that's been declining. Uh, you look at their total yards per game, at least from an offensive standpoint, that's also been declining. Uh, I mean, Tom Brady as a fantasy asset, like, well, he still holds, I mean, as much 
value and name as any of the other greats that are still playing right now. I mean, is he really like that fantasy asset that you'd want to start like week in and week out? And I think Philadelphia kind of showed that. I mean, they've had, I mean, their defensive front has been decent throughout the entire year and they've kind of created that, uh, that pass funnel because running against them has kind of been something of a fool's errand. And with, without Isaiah Wynn, I know that just like one player doesn't really make an offensive line, but I know that a lot of uh, beat writers throughout the week have noted that without Isaiah Wynn in there in order like to uh, keep that offensive line, that continuity, that it has seemed like like that's been part of the issue like for uh, for the Patriots. And now I believe he's supposed to be activated this week and that might help. But yeah, I mean, if you I guess if your top passing options are Julian Edelman, who I'm not 100 percent convinced is over that rib wrist or whatever, like upper body injury that he's been I think that's been nagging him for like the past like two months or so. But and then you have Nikhil Harry, who like who I mean, he just came back to the active roster and then Philip Dorsett and Jacoby Myers. I mean, these are essentially most of them are no name guys. I mean, minus um, uh, minus Edelman. And then now, I mean, most new as well. So, I mean, if those are your if those are your options as a passer, I mean, even still, I'm trying to figure out, like, I guess what are what should our expectations be? I mean, I know it's Tom Brady, but if these are your weapons, it's hard for me to kind of get behind him as a, I guess, a, I know he'll probably be a QB1 or at least in the QB1 ranks almost week in and week out. And they're playing against the Cowboys this week at home. But still, it's just, it's hard for me to get excited when those are your, when those are your passing options. I'm not too, too worried, but this is another one of those case studies we can say, look, this was supposed to be a good matchup and the Patriots couldn't pass the ball against this quote unquote terrible secondary. And yeah, I think it does come back more to the Patriots and what type of offense they're running and all these other factors that you've thrown in. But let's talk about a one more poor performance, one that you believe makes a player a good buy low heading into Week 12. Um, I'll start here, and I'm going to go with a player on the flip side of that matchup, Miles Sanders. Uh, you mentioned how he's been kind of up and down when we were talking about Dallas Goddard, but the usage was absolutely there for him in Week 11. Played 85% of the snaps and per Adam Levitan on Twitter, at Adam Levitan, he ran 43 routes on Carson Wentz's 48 dropbacks. He had 61% of the running back carries, 10% of the team's total targets. So the usage is there for Sanders. We have to be excited about that to some extent. Now, does Jordan Howard come back next week and take some of that usage back? We don't know. But if this is going to be the status quo going forward, I think that Miles Sanders represents a good buy low. Uh, who stands out to you in that regard, Chris? Uh, either of the Bucks receivers, but I'm I'm more concerned and I'm more hopeful about Chris Godwin specifically. Now Cameron Brait actually popped up. He had 14 targets yesterday, which really like kind of like I had to like double check that and make sure like I check I I normally I know most of us use like airyards.com. I know that's back up now. I even went like went over to Pro Football Reference and like checked over there. Like 14 targets like for Cameron Brait. And I know OJ Howard like wound up getting benched. Uh, I think after he caused one of Jameis's interceptions. But either way, I mean, I do think that his recent usage, uh, Godwin specifically, has been something of a concern. But with both Mike Evans and Chris Godwin being like number one and number two in terms of like target share, like over the last like four weeks, uh, I do think that slowly but surely, like with their uh, with their upcoming schedule, I think they're playing Atlanta this week. We talked about that earlier. I do think that he does represent somebody that I think would be a kind of a you know we're hoping for that this is the dip and that you know moving forward that he should be able to at least come back to like what we were seeing during the first part of the season. 
Yeah, I like that call. And I think, again, you know the volume's going to be there, both for Mike Evans and for Chris Godwin. I was surprised that the volume dipped for Tyler Boyd in Week 11. Only, I think, three targets. He didn't really do anything. And he's another player I might look to go get based upon this one poor performance. Uh, But let's get ready to talk waivers. Uh, Before we get there, though, I want to take a break for the sponsor of the show. That's Fantasy Draft. The only rake-free daily fantasy site in the business. They are running the largest rake-free contests out there each and every week. And all told, Fantasy Draft is paying out millions of dollars in prizes over the course of the season. All of those winnings are rake-free. That's right. Fantasy Draft is the only daily fantasy site with no management fees taken out of the prize pools. And this is not just a limited promotion. While other DFS sites can continue to raise their rakes, squeeze prize pools, and make it harder for players like you to win, Fantasy Draft's contests remain rake-free. Sign up at FantasyDraft.com today with promo code 444 and you'll get a free 7-day trial on your first $1,000 of rake-free entry fees. That's FantasyDraft.com with promo code 444, the number 4, F-O-R, the number 4. Don't miss your shot at millions in prizes this season. Start playing rake-free at FantasyDraft.com today. All right, Chris, I want to dig into the waiver wire with you, but before we do, let's take a little bit of a longer view here. Let's talk about playoff planning. Week 13 is typically the last week of fantasy regular seasons, and so week 14, 15, 16 is what we're talking about when we talk about playoff schedules. What's standing out to you when you look ahead for some of these teams? At least for me, I try and look at some of my bench players because the starters that most folks are like are putting in right now, I mean, those are probably your core players. Uh, so I look at some of the players on my bench and then try and see if you know, any of those guys are, you know, either if I'm not going to be playing them during the playoffs, then really there's no sense in me kind of like holding them unless maybe it's the block. Uh, so for a couple of guys that uh, you and I, we were discussing before the show, I mean, I think Sony Michelle, I think he falls like right into that area of, well, you drafted him, you know, probably in the I want to say, what was his ADP, like fourth round, fifth round, like somewhere in there ish. Uh, but either way, I think he's probably been something of an anchor like on your bench. Uh, but their uh, their playoff schedule actually doesn't look too bad. Like in week 14, they're playing against Kansas City. Week 15, they're playing uh, at Cincinnati. In week 16, they're playing against Buffalo. So if you've been holding on to him for this long and you're going to make it into the playoffs, at least there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, the same thing for, for Dalvin Cook. Now, Dalvin Cook owners, I mean, they're probably really happy about the way that the season has turned out. With all of the injury concerns that Cook had coming into uh, the 2019 season after what happened in uh, in 2018, uh, but their uh, playoff schedule is uh, Week 14 against Detroit, Week 15 against the Chargers, and Week 16 uh, against Green Bay. So I mean, th- at least those two guys, like off the top, they really stood out as players that you know could wind up having like decent fantasy playoff schedules. And uh, again, from the running back position, which is I think one of the tougher positions to really like get a hold of, I think those two guys at least kind of stand out as players that yeah, if you if you have them, uh, at least in Sony Michelle's case, if you're if you've been holding on to him this long, here's your chance. And then for Delvin Cook, if you made it into playoffs already or if you're a lock you have something to look forward to of course assuming you should be handcuffing in with alexander madison well and that's the big takeaway for me with this vikings running game is that madison has to be the top handcuff to hold or stash if you're the dalvin cook owner if you're not because that schedule is so good because the running game for minnesota has been so strong if dalvin cook does go down you know god forbid i knock on wood furiously here as, as i talk uh but i you know overwhelm my microphone uh (laughs) but yeah i mean madison has to be owned and he has to be probably the top of that food chain in terms of guys who could end up becoming a quote-unquote league winner if something bad happens to cook so 
on that note, who else stands out to you? Because Tony Pollard is coming off a usable game despite still playing behind Zeke Elliott. Uh, which other handcuff running backs would you be looking to stash uh, in preparation for, you know, maybe a big spike in value during the playoffs? Um, I think that's I think that's the big one for me is Tony Pollard for sure. I mean, we just saw his usage yesterday uh, and what the Cowboys can actually do like with uh, with Pollard behind Zeke. And I wonder. I mean, this might just be I mean, this is just you know us doing like armchair analysis, you know. But when it comes to how we see the Cowboys offense operate, like when Zeke is in the game versus when Tony Pollard is in the game, you'd have to wonder if the I guess either it's Garrett or it's Kellen Moore, if they could find a way to use them almost like on the field at the same time, the same way that uh, Green Bay has found a way to use like Jamal Williams and Aaron Jones. It just seems to me that with their skill set, like what their complementary skill sets, I do think that, I mean, the Cowboys offense as a whole would be able to function better, like using both of them simultaneously versus saying, OK, well, it's either Zeke or it's only it's or it's only Tony Pollard. I, I just think that with Tony Pollard's like ability, uh, both as a, a runner and a pass catcher, I think they could both operate like I think they could make the Cowboys offense much, much better. But, yeah, I think he's he'd be the other top handcuff that I could think of that fantasy owners must have like uh, going into the playoffs i'm gonna throw a few other names at you and you just tell me which one you like out of the pair and then i'll just keep going down the list uh gus edwards or reichwell armstead which one do you think has more value gus edwards for me okay gus edwards or royce freeman uh still edwards for me edwards or any of the kansas city running backs because I, I mean damian williams might be a backup now i don't know who knows i, uh, exactly. I, I assume he's the starter but I, i'm not sure oh, right i i agree and i think that uh, just with the way Baltimore's offense has been operating, I mean, I think they're first in yards per drive, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I, I'd still have to, I'd still have to take uh, Gus Edwards there. It's close. Gus Edwards or or Jamal Williams? Probably Jamal Williams. So why the distinction there? Why, why are you willing to flip on Williams but not all these other running backs? Uh, this is probably just my, my own bias, but I think from the like from a usage perspective, and I still believe that Green Bay's offense has at least has a chance to become better or to be a little bit better like coming out of their bye, but I, I could be completely wrong on that. What are you looking at for the playoffs at other positions? Uh, wide receiver, tight end, quarterback, does anybody stand out to you as someone who is looking really good for those final weeks or really bad on that note? Uh, for wide receiver, uh, if you've been you know, you've been holding on to Odell Beckham, I mean there is there's you know a light at the end of the tunnel there. Uh, so they've got so they're playing the Dolphins this upcoming week. Uh, then they've got the Steelers again, which I mean nobody will have. I mean the media will have nothing to talk about ahead of that game. <laughs> uh, they got the Bengals in week 14, the Cardinals in week 15. So a pretty decent stretch run like over the next like four weeks or so. And then if uh, your uh, your championship is in week 16, you might have to find another option because they are playing the Ravens that week. But at least for a decent part of the playoffs, you do have uh, at least good matchups ahead for for Odell. Um, from a quarterback perspective, to be quite honest with you, uh, I do like the the Jets schedule like moving forward. Now, Sam Darnold, I think he's been something of a floor play in some weeks, but he popped against the Giants and he popped this past week against Washington. Uh, so if you're if you're a believer in uh, Adam Gase, uh, then that, that I think Sam Darnold would be a pretty decent option for you. Yeah, I like it. Let's uh, move into the actual waivers discussion for Week 12. There are four teams on by. This is our last week of bye weeks. Arizona. The Chargers, Kansas City, Minnesota are all off in week 12. What are we losing there? We're losing 
uh, a handful of usable quarterbacks. Uh, I think all four of those guys are, are pretty routinely in the conversation for at least streamability, if not you know every week starters. And you know we're losing players from some of the most prolific offenses in the game. We're losing all of Kansas City's players. We're losing Arizona's players. And Minnesota and the Chargers both have some standout players, maybe not, you know, all around offenses that we want to be invested in. But uh, there are going to be a lot of holes to fill this week. And let's start at running back. I think we have to begin with the Marlon Mack injury and what that's going to do for Naheem Hines, Jonathan Williams, maybe Jordan Wilkins, if he can come back healthy. Williams had a huge game in week 11. Hines was fine, too. How are you prioritizing these Colts running backs with Marlon Mack sidelined? I think you have to start with Jonathan Williams. I mean, after I mean, after just a massive day, and again, we were talking about this earlier in that the Colts, I don't know if it was a game planning issue or if they thought that Miami was just going to be a cakewalk and they were just more focused on whether or not it was going to be Jacoby Brissett or Brian Hoyer. But either way, I mean, they showed almost no teeth on offense in week 10 and then come out and completely just blow the doors off of Jacksonville in week 11. And I think that, yeah, Jonathan Williams, with the way that he wound up, I guess, I mean, pun intended, running away with the job, I think that he would be the guy that you would want to, you want to try and pick up with. I know that the team has already come out and they've kind of given the standard statement for most teams, like after the running back goes down and said, yeah, you know, it's going to be a shared position and we're going to try and get everybody involved. But I guess it's hard for me to see with the way that Jonathan Williams ran against Jacksonville that they're not going to continue to do the same thing uh, against Houston week 12. Right. And you want those goal line touches. You're probably going to get those from Williams and not Naheem Hines. But if you're in a PPR format, Hines is a nice consolation prize for sure. Mm hmm. What if you're comparing these guys to someone who has a higher ownership but might still be available? Like the guy who I continue to raise in this part of the show is Darius Geis because we've been waiting for him to come back this whole time. He's playing for a bad team, but he started ahead of Adrian Peterson in Week 11. It seems like he's going to be the locked-in guy going forward, assuming he can stay healthy. Would you rather go after Darius Geis, who seems to have that role locked up for the rest of the year, or would you rather try to pick up a player like Jonathan Williams who might lose the gig in two or three weeks when Mac is healthy enough to return? Um, honestly, I do think that with the way that uh, Indianapolis and their, I believe their pass rate throughout most of the season was at, I think it was like maybe 51, 52%. Uh, they were like probably bottom five, bottom six in neutral pass game rate. Uh, but they're still, but they're still able to uh, convert third downs. They were still scoring at a fairly decent clip. So I do think, from a, I guess overall, I guess offensive team structure, I'd rather buy into the Colts situation versus the Redskins uh, because it's again that that whole team, I guess from top to bottom, seems to be in disarray. I was happy to see uh, Dwayne Haskins play pretty decent, and then Darius Geis actually played well this past week, uh, but just. I guess we we know what type of team that Washington is. And unless pressed into, I guess, a shootout, they're probably just happy sitting sitting around and only scoring seven to ten points per game and just kind of letting the season, you know, finish out, I guess, with them being towards the bottom of the league again. So I, I'd rather I'd prefer Jonathan Williams over Darius guys, to be quite honest with you. Yeah, and I'm also the type of player who likes to play for now and this week. And with that in mind, I'm on Williams as well. I am excited to see if guys can kind of put together because I don't think they've had a player like him who can contribute both in the running game and the passing game from the running back position uh, quite like him in recent years. So that'll be fun to watch. Yeah, I've been, I'm holding on to Darius Geis in all of my dynasty leagues, and I'm, I'm hoping that 2020, I mean, that's that's the year, man. That, that's going to be the year. 
What's your take on the Lions backfield situation? Because it's been a bit of a mess. J.D. McKissick is still their primary pass catcher, but Bo Scarborough came and usurped Ty Johnson. Scarborough's only 1% owned, so if someone needs running back help, he's the guy you can go out there and target off the waiver wire. But I just don't know if I want to be investing in this offense either. Um, I don't know, to be quite honest with you, because they're playing against uh, who are they going up against in week 12? I believe it's the, uh, the they're playing against the uh, they're playing against Washington. So that actually does work out uh, in terms of, I guess, a matchup that you would probably want to target. And if uh, Bo Scarborough, uh, I mean, he showed out well in week 11. And I think from a again, from an offensive standpoint, if we believe that this team is going to have at least a be in a positive game script and be able to put up points on the board, I wouldn't mind actually investing in Bo, uh, Bo Scarborough in, this week because I do think the Washington's defense, we just saw them get. I mean, completely roughed up for four touchdowns by Sam Darnold. So, and with Jeff Driscoll at least, uh, you know, making his case to be a viable streaming candidate, I do think that at least uh, a couple of his pieces. I mean, of course, you've got Kenny Galladay, Marvin Jones. I mean, all those guys, you're gonna be, you're gonna want to start them. But I think guys like Bo Scarborough should have at least a, a piece of that in Week 12. Yeah, I think that's my big issue, though, is that he's still going to be competing for running back touches with some of these other guys, at least a little bit. I, I can't imagine they're just going to go full feature workload for Bo Scarborough. And if they are going to lean heavier into passing like the Jets did against Washington, th- th- he might still look into some points via good game script. But the schedule beyond that is not very good. Uh, in Week 13, it's the Bears. In Week 14, at Minnesota. In Week 15, Tampa Bay, who has a good running defense. Week 16, at Denver. I think, if anything, I want to be investing on the passing game side of the ball for Detroit, not the running game side. And with that in mind, I think J.D. McKissick might still be a viable pickup as well at 30-something percent ownership. Um, The last team I want to talk to you about here are the aforementioned Chiefs and their cluster of running backs uh, behind Damian Williams. LaShawn McCoy, 54% owned. Darrell Williams, 5% owned. Darwin Thompson, 5% owned. I just want to bring them up as a situation to monitor during Monday Night Football just to see who, if anyone, from this group can eat into that workload of Damian Williams because this is one of the best offenses in the league. Their defense isn't going to present them with a whole lot of great running game scripts, but Andy Reid is creative enough getting the ball to his running backs as receivers and just in good situations in general that I, I want pieces of this offense on the chance that Damian Williams gets hurt again or one of these other guys just kind of ascends into a starting role or or a larger workload Um, what's your take on this backfield yeah I agree with you there that you do want to have a piece of it and I'm I guess my my only issue with with Darwin Thompson is that I if I'm not mistaken it was during for the week 10 game like when LaShawn McCoy was announced out uh, they said that they wanted to get. Uh, they said they wanted to let him have a veteran rest for the, you know, for the playoff stretch run, yada yada. And it was going to be Damian Williams, and they wanted to get a look at Darwin Thompson. I remember that tidbit, but then seeing that Darwin Thompson only played, like I think he played like single digit snaps. Yeah. So I guess out of out of that entire running back group, it doesn't look like Darwin Thompson 2019 is not going to be his year. So it'd really be Daryl Williams for me. We've seen him get like do some things on the field throughout the season when they've been trying to figure out the the workload between LaShawn McCoy and Damian Williams. Uh, but yeah, I do agree that if if you're you should get a piece of that running back uh, uh, running back committee, and I think it would probably be Daryl Williams for for me if you can't get LaShawn McCoy or a trade for Damian Williams. Let's move to wide receiver, and I want to start off this segment with two guys who are over fifty percent ownership, so they don't truly qualify as easy waiver wire additions but 
The aforementioned Debo Samuel is 53% owned. Devonta Parker is 58% owned. Both of these guys could have been booms of the week earlier in the show. And I'm curious, if you have to prioritize Devonta versus Debo this week off the waiver wire, which one do you prefer? It has to be Debo Samuel. And this is, uh, th- that's at least for me, and this is probably a bias that I have because I know that Devontae Parker is probably going to see a larger target share in the, in his respective offense. I mean, at this point, with Preston Williams being out, Mike Kosicki not doing a ton, and Kalen Balage is just Kalen Balage, uh, I guess you can really see him getting like the, the, the lion's share of the touches or targets in that offense. And Debo Samuel, we already discussed. I mean, there's just so many other players that Jimmy Garoppolo can pass to on a weekly basis. So I get that. But I can't, for some reason, I can't get past investing in poor teams. And that was kind of my my knock against Darius Geis because I'm just not, I don't want to try and invest into Washington players. And it'd be the same thing for Miami. I guess from a process standpoint, I guess I'll, I'll flip it back to you. I mean, is that, do you have to just look at the, I guess, the potential for targets? Or is, I mean, do you try and take offensive situation into account too? And it's just, I would rather go with the player playing for the better team. I mean, does that make sense? Oh, it totally does. And I, But I think that there are a lot of pieces to this. We, we mentioned that earlier in the show. You can't just look at one thing necessarily. Like the fact that Debo's on a better team is a, you know, a mark in his favor. But the fact that Parker is going to probably see more targets or a larger target share is a mark in his favor. And then if you look ahead to the schedule, the Dolphins are at Cleveland. Then it's Philly, the Jets, the Giants, the Bengals down the stretch. So Things are lining up pretty well for Devonta Parker in the playoffs, and I think that might be enough to put me on him. If you look at the Niners' upcoming schedule, they are against Green Bay this week, Monday Night Football. Then they're at Baltimore, at New Orleans, and maybe Marshawn Lattimore will be back for that game. Then they get Atlanta and Los Angeles in Weeks 15 and 16. I don't think it's so much of a difference in schedule. Like I don't think this is a terrible slate of games for the Niners necessarily, especially because we have to assume that Emmanuel Sanders and George Kittle, one or both of them are going to be back eventually and start to take away some defensive attention, but that's going to hurt Debo's target share more, even if he has a better you know matchup against the defense necessarily, like against a cornerback or whatever. I, I think it's really close, and that's kind of why I wanted to bring the question up. I don't think there's necessarily a right answer, but I think I would lean Parker just, like you said, for the pure volume aspect of it. Like I think he's going to get more targets, and that's why I like him more. And I think you actually uh, you sold me on their upcoming schedule. And I think from that's the piece that I think most folks might want to lean on where it's just, all right, if you pick them up now, you don't necessarily have to start them because if you wind up picking them up, it's under the assumption that you have other assets that you can start in this place. Review and kind of look at like how things shake out. And then if you need them in the playoffs, that's an option for you just kind of waiting on your bench because we were talking about earlier from a playoff strategy perspective, you'd want to have players on your bench that either if you have to, if you're forcing the starting due to injury, okay, you can put them in. But if you're holding them on your bench, it's specifically for the playoffs. And as you mentioned, their schedule lightens up. So that would be something, somebody that you could rotate in at least for, and have a, I guess, a defensible position for putting in a player that you normally wouldn't. I mean, just because of their matchup and projected volume. How about some of these wide receivers at lower ownership? Who stands out to you as a good pickup for Week 12? Um, I'm I'm really I'm really starting to dig Hunter Renfro, and I think that I mean part of my issue is that I'm invested in Darren Waller in a few places. 
So I'm, I'm not happy that he's been taking some of the snaps away and some of the targets away from Darren Waller. But for at least for right now, I mean, we're looking at the fact that he's been like first in target share for the past four weeks. I mean, he's kind of living off yak. I mean, he's getting some of those short targets because Derek Carr, I think his ADOT as of right now is just short of uh, just sort of seven. So, I mean, he's been kind of dinking and dunking down the field, but that's kind of how he's operate over the past few seasons. And with that, I mean, it, I think Hunter Renfro has kind of been that beneficiary. So, I mean, it, with the way that Oakland has been playing so far, and I think their schedule is fairly decent, like down the stretch, I think Hunter Renfro is a guy that you can kind of, if you can pick him up and start him, I mean, you can probably get, I mean, similar production from what we've seen over the past few weeks. So you mentioned how you're invested in Darren Waller and a number of teams. If you need a wide receiver for one of those teams, are you less likely to go after Renfro because you don't want to stack up the Oakland Raiders? Because that's the way I would look at it. I wouldn't necessarily want two pieces of that offense where, as you said, Derek Carr's just kind of dinking, dinking and dunking. I don't mind having one of those guys, but to roster two of them feels like spinning my wheels. Yeah, that's fair because I, I'm trying to remember the last time that Derek Carr actually had a two or three touchdown game, and they don't they don't happen all too often. So if you're if you're really expecting either one of them to hit, it's very it, I guess it's less likely that both of them wind up hitting in the same week. So yeah, I think if you're already if you're holding on to Darren Wall in a few spots, and uh, I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't advise like trying to pick up two Oakland Raiders. Uh, that I think that's probably the thing they call like negative correlation. Another guy though would be a uh, Randall Cobb. Uh, I know with uh, Amari Cooper, his uh, I guess his knee injury or I guess whatever he's like injury, the lower leg injury that he's been dealing with over the past few weeks uh, has kind of kept him in and out of the lineup. He was fine in uh, week ten. Uh, only a couple targets or maybe like less than 50 yards here in week 11. But I think Dallas now has, I guess, enough pieces in that offense with Michael Gallup, uh, Randall Cobb, Blake Jarwin. I just now starting to show out at tight end and I'm hoping they wind up, you know, kind of let Jason Witten, you know, out to pasture. But I mean, Randall Cobb is, uh, he's, he's actually really turned out to be, I guess, what we had hoped to see more of him in Green Bay. But either way, 18% target share. I mean, a clear role. Uh, in that offense, uh, as long as Amari Cooper is, you know, dealing with health issues. And that's really helped uh, Dak Prescott. I think it's really helped Dak Prescott, I guess, solidify, I guess, his argument for MVP. At least I think he should at least be in the conversation. So either way, I mean, if you can get if you can get Randall Cobb, I mean, I think he'd be another a fine option to pick up off waivers. I'm just going to rattle off a few other wide receiver names uh, before we get to quarterbacks, just so that we're going full disclosure with the listeners here. Darius Slayton is only 25% owned. Kenny Stills, 23%. A.J. Brown, 20%. And actually, maybe let's stop here. I want to talk a little bit more about A.J. Brown because he's coming off a bye. It, Corey Davis was hurt heading into the bye. Maybe Davis comes back and resumes his role as the 1B to A.J. Brown's 1A. Do you care? I, I kind of don't. I think that this is... Brown's gig for the most part as the wide receiver one in that offense and I'm interested in owning him I don't know if I would be looking to start him outside of you know a really good matchup but I think he should probably probably be rostered in most leagues don't you no I agree yeah absolutely I agree I think with the way that the target share has kind of worked out Corey Davis going down I know that Johnny Smith has kind of been on the rise with Delaney Walker out there but it's kind of a condensed target tree because we're not seeing a ton of involvement of Adam Humphreys Tajay Sharp I mean, we're not seeing them like really climb up, uh, you know, climb up the the ranks in terms of targets. So I think it's kind of AJ Brown and Corey Davis if he's in and John. I mean, that that's really about it. It's not like Deion Lewis is really pushing for targets like we kind of expected him to be with his role in the offense in the 2018 season. So yeah, I, I think AJ Brown is a fine pickup. 
Uh, another one, Josh Reynolds, I think he's a good one to chase this week, kind of in that same bucket as Renfro and Cobb and A.J. Brown, someone who is going to be boom or bust, as we talked about earlier, but you know, if you hit those boom weeks, that's all that matters. Uh, Nelson Aguilar is only 13% owned, but I would probably shy away from Aguilar and let somebody else pick him up. He had nine targets, and if someone else in my leagues wants to chase that, that's fine. I just don't think Aguilar is very good, and I think that wide receiver group in Philly, as you noted earlier, has some problems. Uh, yeah. Chris Conley, also 13% owned. I like him as a pickup for all the reasons we mentioned earlier. Nikhil Harry at 12% ownership. Taylor Gabriel at 7% ownership. Take Gabriel's 14 targets in Week 11 with a grain of salt because Allen Robinson was locked up by Jalen Ramsey in that game. Uh, but what do you think about Nikhil Harry? We mentioned some of the struggles that Tom Brady had and that offense in general is having in New England. Is Harry a player you're interested in? Absolutely. Um, I actually I wrote about him in one of my offseason pieces for 444, uh, taking a look at his time when he was still at Arizona State, uh, you know, him getting selected by the Patriots and kind of what my expectations for, uh, for him were going to be in that offense. And uh, even with like, I mean, especially back then when we expected Josh Gordon was uh, was still going to be a part of that offense. And then even when the Antonio Brown stuff was, you know, he was there and gone. But either way, um, I talked to Mark Schofield. Uh, he works for uh, the Pat's. Pul- he does like Pat's Pulpit. He does the Sco Show, where he's been just focusing on New England for a while. I talked with him over the off season, and with the way that Nikhil Harry plays, he's been one of those like big slot interior guys. And his assumption was that he was going to wind up, I guess, really kind of taking over that role that Gronk kind of left behind. And everybody had assumed that. You know, the parade of tight ends that they brought in over the over the offseason. And then now Ben Watson was going to be like the Gronk replacement. But Nikhil Harry can really like with his size, he can take that he can take that over. And I think this past week we saw signs of that. And uh, Jeff Howe from The Athletic, I read one of his pieces earlier today that kind of broke down Harry's, I guess, usage this past week on snaps, but only four targets, but he was used a lot on slants, like from the interior. And those were like the routes that Josh Gordon was running last season. So if that's the type of, I guess, play or expectation we can expect for uh, Nikhil Harry moving forward from like a route tree and uses perspective, I think that, I mean, as the Patriots start to figure out their offense again and not having to lean on their defense so much that Nikhil Harry is going to be one of those guys that gets into the quote unquote circle of trust for Tom Brady. Yeah, like I'm curious to see how it all works out. A couple more lower-owned guys. Alan Lazard, 6% ownership. We've talked about him on the show a number of times, but it seems like he's taken over that number two receiver role in Green Bay, and that has value. And then Kendrick Bourne, 1% owned. If you're in a deep league, maybe you chase those touchdowns that he's scoring. But I think that, as we mentioned earlier, once Kittle is back, once Emmanuel Sanders is back, Bourne is probably going to go back to being a you know two to four target per game type of player. So temper your expectations with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk QBs. And I went into making the notes for the show, Chris, with really no two quarterback options to pick up. But then, of course, Sunday Night Football delivers. Uh, We get Mitchell Trubisky benched for Chase Daniel at the end of the game. And they say it was related to a hip injury for Trubisky, but I I don't buy that. Do you? Oh, not at all. I know that uh, David Chow, pro football doc, I mean, he was trying to search for video clips of how uh, Mitchell Trubisky could have possibly like, hurt his hip, and he couldn't really find anything. And I know that after uh, after the game, Trubisky was talking to the press, and he was talking about some hit that he took, and it started to flare up, but I, I'm not buying that. I mean, it just he wasn't playing well. He hasn't been playing well for a while. I mean, there were plenty of 
plenty of analysts like throughout the game really noting like I guess some of the errors that he was making like during that game and it's it's hard for me to see this as anything other than a benching at this point but at the same time are we supposed to be interested in Chase Daniel like I don't know if I can get there even in a good matchup against the Giants coming up I think if I'm in a two quarterback format unless I'm in desperate need of a quarterback to start I'm not going to look at Chase Daniel the only other situation I can can contrive where maybe I would pick him up is if I'm playing against somebody who desperately needs a quarterback this week like maybe that player had Philip Rivers and Kyler Murray on his team and those guys are both on by so he needs to pick up Chase Daniel I might try to block this week 12 opponent from getting Daniel but otherwise I think I'm just gonna let somebody else go after him yeah I'm kind of with you there I mean again I, I write the a quarterback streaming column for four for four each week. And when I was going through the matchup review uh, in order to determine, in order to figure out, okay, well, who has some good matchups? I'll kind of dig into uh, their stats and see if they're even viable for this week. And of course, like while I was watching the, the Sunday night game, I, I saw uh, I'd already circled Mitchell Trubisky as a possible matchup. But then after watching that game and really looking at his play and then seeing him get benched for, for Chase Daniel, I was like, there's, there's just no way. I mean, that offense is in, in such a disarray at this point. And again, even even in a matchup like what we're seeing for, for Chicago against the Giants this week, I mean, and it's at home too, so it's kind of one of those like – from a process perspective, it will kind of lead you towards wanting to start the, the Chicago Bears quarterback against the Giants. I, I just can't bring myself to do it. There are other viable options this week. Uh, I mean, we, we'll get into those uh, in here in probably just a couple minutes. But, yeah, I, I can't bring myself to do it. Let's get into it right now. There isn't a whole lot of help for two-quarterback format, so let's talk one-quarterback league streaming. And I'm going to disqualify Baker Mayfield. He's at 54% ownership, so... If you're looking for a quarterback streamer, that's the guy if he's out there, like go after him. He's playing against the Dolphins. Aside from Mayfield, though, Chris, which of these quarterbacks at lower ownership are standing out to you? Um, as of right now, the first one that pops off the list, at least for, for right now, is uh, Sam Darnold against the Raiders. Um, I really liked like how it seems like uh, ever since the I'm seeing ghosts, like you know that whole comment, it seems like it's been kind of a slow progression, like back towards the guy that we saw towards the end of the 2018 season. And really like shortly, like it, I think it was, was it week six? I think when he came back against the, against the Cowboys, I believe it was that week, but either way, I think we've seen a slow progression, like back towards that guy. And it looks like Gase has kind of allowed him to operate as a, as a quarterback, the way that it's more comfortable for him. We're seeing a few more deep shots, not a ton, but at the very least, with the with Jameson Crowder playing well, Demarius Thomas has actually become like a, a, a decent contributor, and of course yeah. Ryan Griffin at tight end. I mean, he has the weapons in order to actually move the offense like down the field. And against the Raiders, who their defensive front has actually been pretty decent. Uh, Max Crosby, I think he's had like at least two sacks like each game the past three, or at least one or two the past three. I mean, their defeat, defensive front is decent, but I still think that there's enough there uh, for Sam Darnold to actually play well. And again, they're going to be at home. So again, another one of those process plays that kind of leads you to uh, at least Sam Darnold being a viable quarterback streamer in week 12. Another one, uh, Nick Foles. Now in his return, I mean, he looked pretty decent. And we saw uh, DJ Chark uh, get into the box a couple of times or at least once. And, uh, I mean, the other ancillary pieces actually played, like, fairly decently. So I think against the Titans, who are at least down Malcolm Butler, I know they're coming off of a bye. But still, uh, I think that he's at least a, a viable candidate, like, for, for Week 12. 
Yeah, I worry about Foles because of some of those process aspects you talk about. He's on the road. The Tennessee defense is coming off a bye. The Tennessee defense is generally pretty good, especially at home. Mm-hmm. And that has me worried about Foles. With that said, there aren't a whole lot of other great streaming options out there. Like, I'm looking at Jacoby Brissett at 30, 38% ownership. He's playing at Houston. So, again, on the road, not great. But mm-hmm. at least Houston has another injury in their secondary. Cornerback Lonnie Johnson hurt his ankle in Week 11, didn't return. So if he continues to miss time in Week 12, then that makes it that much easier to pass on a Houston team that was already pretty dinged up. Oh, and also the they've, uh, they're down Justin Reed, uh, their starting safety as well. Right. So, I mean, that's that team has been a mess on defense for most of the year, especially you know against the pass. So I like Brissett for that reason. And I, I think I like him more than Foles because of that, although it'll be less likely that Brissett is available compared to Foles. Uh, do you share that preference with me for Brissett? I think that makes sense, and it would make even more sense because I thought I heard rumblings earlier today of T.Y. Hilton possibly being available this week. Ooh. Now, I'd be surprised like with them having to play on Thursday night that he's actually going to be active for this week. But, I mean, we'll, we'll see. I mean, if yeah, if T.Y. Hilton is available, yeah, lock and load uh, Jacoby Brissett. He would jump right up to the top of my list. Another player I might prefer to Foles is the quarterback on the other side of the matchup, Ryan Tannehill, because, again, he's at home in that matchup. Mm-hmm. They're coming off by. He's had extra time to prepare for this defense. And the Jacksonville pass rush is pretty good. They're they're good against the run or, or good enough against the run, but their secondary is not what it used to be now that Ramsey is out of town. I think that this could be a spot where Tannehill puts up some numbers, and I'm curious to see if he can do it. I, I, I'm optimistic. I see. And this is, again, my own personal bias of just holding on to I mean, holding on to years of Ryan Tannehill not being a good quarterback. But again, they we talked about A.J. Brown, like being a good player. Corey Davis, at least, has been functional, like when he's been healthy. Johnu Smith. I mean, we, we listed off like a number of at least decent assets for Tennessee. And of course, all that production intersects at the quarterback. So, I mean, Ryan Tannehill, I mean, for all of his faults in Miami, I mean, at least he's he's an upgrade from Marcus Mariota, which like kind of pains me to say it. But I, I think that, yeah, he should be another viable streamer. Like in the, coming off the bye, they're, they're at home. I mean, there's at least from a process standpoint, I can see how folks could wind up there. Yeah, and I might be overrating the Jacksonville matchup. I just pulled up our adjusted fantasy points against table over at 444.com, and Tennessee, allow, they're 17th best against quarterbacks. Jacksonville 16th best. So it's pretty much a coin flip there. There is a, a bit of a skew. Actually, Tennessee gives up more adjusted fantasy points per game than Jacksonville does to quarterbacks. I think that even though these numbers are adjusted, I think that might still have to do with the schedule for the Jags because mm-hmm. they've faced, you know, Darnold and uh, Andy Dalton and Teddy Bridgewater when the Saints came to town, Kyle Allen, uh, Denver and Tennessee already. And that was a, a Mariota game. So they haven't faced the stiffest competition. I think with, uh, you know, a, a little bit more perspective, we might say that the Jacksonville defense is worse than their numbers might present, but uh, I might be overrating that matchup. I, I think that leaning on Tannehill because of, you know, at home, that sort of process makes sense, but you might be right. It might just be a situation to avoid because that team wants to be run heavy and that's that's not really their identity to put up, you know, 40, 50 pass attempts. Right. And I think after, especially after the Colts just put up over 200 rushing yards, I mean, Derrick Henry owners have to be licking their chops at this matchup, right? Oh, definitely. I mean, I, I know where I own him. I'm very excited to start him. Uh, but let's get back to QBs real quick. Uh, for the real dumpster divers, Ryan Fitzpatrick at Cleveland, Mason Rudolph at Cincinnati, Dwayne Haskins home against Detroit, Jeff Driscoll at Washington. Of those four sketchy options, which one would you be most likely to start? 
I like, I'm in the process of writing Week 12's uh, streaming options for four for four, and I have Jeff Driscoll as the one the deeper league streaming pick. I have Mason Rudolph as an honorable mention uh, for the uh, for the pieces that we discussed earlier in the show. But Jeff Driscoll, I mean, at the very least, uh, Cincinnati fans like the I, I'm an ex Cincinnati fan, but uh, I, recovering. Yeah, recovering. Yeah, like that's the better <laughs> term for it. Gosh, uh, but. We know we've seen this guy beforehand and we know at least like at the very least his rushing floor uh, from his time in Cincinnati was something that we saw. I mean, we didn't really like appreciate it because the team was already in the dumps. But I mean, that at least has provided at least some upside. And actually, that was a that was a pretty uh, nifty little like zone read that he actually used in order to get into the uh, get into the end zone this past week. But I mean, they're playing against the Redskins, just got dunked on for four touchdowns by Sam Darnold. Uh, We've got. Marvin Jones, Kenny Galladay, TJ Hawkinson. I mean, there, I mean, so many pieces of that offense that we would expect to perform well. And if, again, we'll just trying to use the, I guess, the transitive property in order to look at, like, in order to look at these matchups, because if we saw Demarius Thomas, Robbie Anderson, and Jamison Crowder all perform well, and then here comes TJ Hawkinson, Kenny Galladay, and Marvin Jones, all that production intersects at the quarterback. So at the very least, from a floor perspective, I think Jeff Driscoll, with his rushing ability, even if he throws an, an interception, one or two, I'm like, again, I think he's only thrown one so far uh, in his two starts with Matthew Stafford being down. I mean, his rushing should negate most of that impact. So with the weapons that they have, I think Jeff Driscoll should be a fine start. He might be one of those value plays uh, for, for DFS purposes n- next week. Totally agree. He'd be the guy for me, too. I just... I don't trust Mason Rudolph at all after that performance that we just saw. Now, maybe the matchup at Cincinnati will cure that, but I'm not going to take that risk. I'd rather just go with the player who has better weapons, who's been performing better of late, and I think that that matchup at Washington is just as good as a matchup at Cincinnati. Let's go through tight ends quickly, and I'm going to start off up top with Jacob Hollister, Dallas Goddard. I think those are your two top tight end ads this week. Chris, do you agree with that, and which one do you prefer of the two? Uh, still Goddard for me. I think just with the way that Philadelphia's offense, like even though they they didn't play well this past week, and I know that uh, some folks will point to uh, the Patriots defense, other folks will point to Carson Wentz not playing well, other folks will point to the receivers not playing well. Their fingers pointing everywhere. But either way, I think Dallas Goddard played well enough, and his with his target share within that offense, he should be the guy to to target. Okay, and now how about some of these lower ownership guys? If I throw out Mike Kosecki, Ross Dwelly, Jonu Smith, Ryan Griffin, Ben Watson, uh, the aforementioned Blake Jarwin, which one of those guys do you like the most? Um, I like Blake Jarwin the most, but I know that, or at least my my gut Turn off your dynasty brain, Chris, please. I know, (laughs) and I know that Jason Garrett is probably too stubborn to admit that, you know, Jason Witten just isn't going to, like, be the engine of that offense and actually just you know, play Blake Jarwin over him. He's more athletic. He can run deeper routes. I mean, he's just he's just better. I mean, he's younger. He's faster. He's better. But either way, I, I, to me, Blake Jarwin is the one that stands out. I don't know how much longer uh, George Kittle is going to be out. They showed him. I thought they showed him at least out there with the team, like doing some uh, like pre-game like warmups and all that. But he was still out, so I don't know how much longer he's going to be out. But Dwelly like seemed to play well uh, the past two weeks with his target share, so I don't mind that. 
Uh, and then last, I guess, Jonu Smith with Delaney Walker being out. I know that he said that he wanted to be back after the bye, so I guess we'll have to wait probably. We probably won't hear anything on Walker status until later on in the week. So I guess in, in order, it'd probably be Jarwin, Dwelly, and then Smith for me. Yeah, one of the players we didn't mention is also going off with Sam Darnold against Washington in Week 11 was Ryan Griffin, the tight end. He caught five of five targets for 109 yards and a touchdown. I think that was probably more matchup-based than anything else, but now he gets to face Oakland in Week 12, so he's another player I'd be moderately interested in. I'd be more likely to you know, use him as a cheap option in DFS, though, than want to plug him into my season-long lineups. Uh, let's talk defense and special teams, and the streaming options here, I think, are a little thin in Week 12. Do any of them jump out to you, Chris? Uh, Cleveland against Miami. I mean, sure. I guess I, I get that. Uh, I mean, at home... Uh, I mean, Miami hasn't, I mean, they haven't put up a ton of points and their secondary has been okay. I mean, you know, when they're not taking shots at other opposing wide receivers heads, those, that type of thing. Uh, So I I can get, I can get behind that as a, as a streaming defense. Jacksonville, I don't know what happened this past week with uh, the Colts being able to completely do almost whatever, whatever they wanted on the ground against them, which was kind of shocking to me. Uh, So I, I would prefer Cleveland in that, in that case. Yeah, and they're both pretty likely available, uh, or unavailable, excuse me. Cleveland is owned in about half of Yahoo leagues. So if we have to dig a little deeper, I'm looking at Indianapolis at Houston. They're only 38% owned, uh, but I'm not really excited about starting a defense against Deshaun Watson, as bad as their offensive line has been. Do you? Would you use Indy, or would you dig a little deeper, maybe go down to Denver against Buffalo, Tennessee against Jacksonville, the Giants against... Chase Daniel or Mitchell Trubisky at Chicago, Detroit at Washington, Atlanta versus Tampa Bay. Like I feel like all of these less lesser than defenses actually stand out more to me than one like Indy, who has performed relatively well but has a matchup that I'm not quite as excited about. Right, I would agree with you there. I'd, I mean, we were talking about Atlanta's defense earlier. I mean, they they definitely stand out after. I mean, uh, Jameis Winston he threw what four picks this past week uh so I mean, same I, as it ever was man right and I mean at a pick six to boot on top of that and uh I mean so in Atlanta's defense and I guess they also scored a special teams touchdown if I'm not mistaken off of either a punt return or kickoff or something like that so Atlanta's defense I think against Jameis Winston sure why not I mean that's a defensible pickup to me uh Detroit against Washington sure I can I can see that one as well um, their secondary coverage has been pretty decent as of late, uh, even with the loss of Quantre Diggs, like during the uh, during the trade deadline or shortly before the trade deadline. So I can I can get behind that one as well. I, Indianapolis, Denver, Tennessee, yeah, I can. I mean, from a um, I guess from a matchup standpoint and what we've thought about those defenses in the past, I can see that. But again, those lower on defenses, I think, kind of stick out more to me. Yeah, I can get behind all that. I think I think you're spot on. Um, Chris, this has been great. Uh, normally, we would talk about some droppable players. We don't have time to get into a whole lot of them in detail, but I'll throw out David Johnson, Matthew Stafford, the other Lions running backs, as I talked about before. Any other players that you're cutting bait with this week? Uh, I mean, those guys are probably the... Uh, the ones on the top off the top of my head. I mean, David Johnson, that one has to be like the hardest one. I mean, just whatever's I think happened. It's time. Yeah. I think whatever's happened to him 
uh, I don't know if it's injury or if it's just uh, just the compilation of, you know, he's just his body's wearing down or whatever. It's just it's tough to see. I mean, it really is, especially when we had all assumed that in this offense with Cliff Kingsbury and Kyler Murray, that this was going to be his season. And it's just it sounds like it's just proven to be too much for his body. So, yeah, I'm, I'm with you there. It's tough, though. Yeah, I sad to say it. But, yeah, I think it's time. And I mean, I own him in a bunch of spots. I'm not happy about it but i think this might be the week to let him go and i'm gonna have a hard time pulling the trigger that's the worst part is i might still not drop him because there, there's that maybe glimmer of hope but mm-hmm. i don't know you look at the Kenyon drake trade you look at how well chase edmonds played compared to david johnson within the same offense and it, it just doesn't seem like he's there this year i think you're right uh chris this has been great thank you very much for taking the time to jump on the show and, and you did it last minute i appreciate that very much why don't you let the listeners know where they can find you and uh let them know what you got going on for week 12 uh, you can find me on Twitter at Chris Allen FFWX, and you can find my quarterback streaming column. I should have that finished up tonight, and it should be uh, edited by the wonderful uh, Jen Eakins, and uh, that should be out tomorrow. I'll have my weekly drop targets for number fire uh, out. That should be also out tomorrow, and then the weather report for the upcoming week that should be released on Friday. So you can find my content in a few places, but uh, yeah, you'll see me likely retweeting some of that throughout the week. So come check me out. Cool. Thanks again. Uh, Listeners, if you want to follow me, you can find me on Twitter at Greg Sauce. We'll be back again next week to get you all set for the Thanksgiving Day games. That is uh, always uh, very different, uh, and I'm looking forward to to hashing it out uh, with another guest and with you all on these podcast airwaves. Uh, So until then, thanks for listening to the most accurate podcast. Adios. (laughs) 